Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to On, a short podcast for the Christian with a short attention span, a podcast intended to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day, a Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. This episode is an unfortunate attack. Six men lined up in incremental distances on the parade route. Each had a weapon with the intent of assassinating an aspiring leader. The first passed up his opportunity as a cop unwittingly stood behind him. The second had a hand grenade and lobbed it at the 1911 Grafenstiff convertible. Fortunately, the bomb hit the folded top and fell to the ground, rolling under the following car and detonating there. The explosion injured between 16 and 20 people. The perpetrator ran from the police, ingested a cyanide pill, and jumped off a bridge into a river below to ensure his death and to protect the other conspirators. Unfortunately, the cyanide pill was defective and only induced vomiting, and the river, due to a drought, was only 13 centimeters deep. He survived the fall, however, and was arrested, but not before being beaten by the crowd. By this time, the Archduke had been rushed away to a safe place and went about his business, attending a luncheon and delivering a speech. Following the speech, the Archduke made the choice to visit the wounded. After all, such a humanitarian visit was a great public relations. The security detail prepped the vehicles and headed for the hospital. During that same stretch of time, Gavarillo Princip, the next assassin in line, had retreated to a nearby restaurant to plan his next move. Unfortunately, the security detail failed to communicate a subtle route detail to the lead driver, and the motorcade turned down the wrong street. Realizing the error, the driver stopped, threw the car into reverse, but unfortunately the car died. Unfortunately, the car died within feet of Princip. In a city the size of Sarajevo, what are the odds? It would make sense if the driver was complicit in the assassination attempt, but he was exonerated. Seizing a perceived divine opportunity to complete his mission, Princip stepped forward, fired several shots, hitting Archduke Ferdinand in the jugular and stomach. While his second intended victim was the mayor of Sarajevo, Princip hit Ferdinand's wife, Sophie, instead. Sophie died en route to the hospital, and the Archduke died ten minutes after they arrived. Ferdinand's final two phrases live in infamy. First, he begs Sophie, Sophie, don't die. Live for the children. A noble but vain request. The second phrase, when the mayor asks about the Duke's wounds, Ferdinand replies between six and seven times as he's rejecting first aid, it's nothing, it's nothing. With a bullet through the neck, and a few in his stomach. It's a miracle he could say anything, let alone, it's nothing. How often do we underestimate the severity of a wound? It's not like he brought a shotgun or a forty-five or a 9mm with hollow points. He brought a twenty-two caliber Browning. It was nothing. Maybe you've noticed the heavy usage of the word, unfortunately. To borrow a title from a movie that my kids watch, this is a series of unfortunate events that trigger World War I. 
Granted, there were plenty of other powder keg issues looming over the region, but this, this was the trigger. Have you ever been hit like this? You walk away from one situation victorious, then you're taken out at the knees by a tactical turn of events that seems so simple, but thoroughly coordinated. It comes as a subtle, yet critical comment. A friend request on Facebook from the wrong person. A commercial for an alcoholic beverage. A drug reference in a comedy intended for a laugh. A curt word from your spouse. A bill in the mail from a collections agency. The renegade moron cuts you off in traffic. It's as if there was a targeted effort to spiritually assassinate you. The Bible teaches that we are blindsided by the attack when our deep and closely held selfish desires reveal themselves. Consider James 1, 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Also consider chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you quarrel and fight. I cannot judge accurately if the Archduke Ferdinand was driven by a pride that said, quote, I'm not afraid of these treasonous thugs, and I'm not going to let them cast a shadow on my visit today. I'm going to take advantage of this PR opportunity and boost morale. Or was he coasting along in blissful ignorance that throws caution to the wind and says, I'm glad that's over. Let's carry on with the plan and visit victims while we're at it. Pride is evil, and ignorance is costly. But put them together, and they're absolutely devastating. Ferdinand is quite possibly the intersecting point. Of both. Coupled with intentional ignorance, this prideful attitude of being above consequence is found many times in Scripture. It starts with Eve and the serpent. Surely you're not going to die, in Genesis 3 4. Eve determines that the consequence that God laid out were not as serious as he stated, and she is deceived into believing that the benefits outweigh the consequence, and even then, the consequences would not apply to her. She succumbs to the first spiritual attack on humanity, and sin is introduced into the human bloodline. One of the cool things about the Bible is that it doesn't just capture successes and sweep the bad under the rug. It's just the opposite, in fact. The Bible records the wrongs so that we can see how twisted the flesh can get and learn from others' sin. Consider the mistake of the ignorant male in Proverbs 7. He's out late, he's in a bad part of town, and he starts a conversation with a seductress that delivers quite a sales pitch. And he doesn't run away. He doesn't change the channel, he doesn't excuse himself, he doesn't stay on the path and keep moving. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 13, 14, quote, But put on Christ Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The Proverbs 7 male makes a provision for the flesh. He takes a shortcut through the bad part of town. He puts himself within a short strike distance 
of sin. He made a provision. He made it possible. To break down Paul's statement about the, quote, make no provision, end quote, it means that a person shouldn't put themselves in a position that makes sin easy and simple. The flesh will say, it's okay to go to the edge. That's not a sin. Jumping off's a sin, but you're not going to do that, are you? Wink, wink, nod, nod. Then, with a very subtle and demonic nudge, a person will fall headlong into some sin, all because a provision for the flesh was made that allowed them to stand within striking distance or stumbling distance of sin. And someone witnessing the aftermath will refer to it as an unfortunate attack when it was anything but. I have a friend who's lived in victory over a chemical addiction for more than 25 years. He makes an interesting observation regarding the provision for the flesh. I think it's part of the AA process, and it's an excellent piece of advice. He says that the flesh will create circumstances where the drug is needed. Some of you are going to want to rewind that. I'll say it again real quick, but you may want to rewind it and listen to that a couple of times. The flesh will create the circumstances where the drug is needed. For instance, one possibility is that the addiction will stir up a conflict and a contention, which leads to stress, which can only be soothed by medication, opioids, alcohol, pornography, gambling, risky behavior, food, shopping, binging, purging, cutting, and the list could really go on further. The flesh makes a provision or an opportunity for the addiction to be the cure, and those provisions put them within one subtle step of sin. We've got to ask ourselves, what are our provisions? What subtle concessions do we make that put us within a subtle nudge of sin? What provisions cause your car to come to a complete stop in front of an assassin? Here are a couple thoughts to keep in mind. First, these provisions aren't necessarily sin. As provisions for the flesh, they are more akin to what the writer of Hebrews refers to as unnecessary weights that entangle us. Sin is sin, regardless of the person. A provision of the flesh may be more subjective. And the second thought to keep in mind, people who put up safeguards or personal convictions to keep from the edge of the cliff or sin are not legalistic. Committing to a rule or guideline so as not to fall into sin is not legalism. Legalism is thinking that you're saved by your ability to keep a rule, and nothing could be further from the truth. But there are two sides to this coin. First, the fact is that maintaining personal convictions is more an act of love than legalism. It says, God, I know sin breaks your heart, and I, I don't want to find myself bringing that kind of pain to your heart or wreck in any way our relationship. It shows a respect for God and His character and His grace towards us. Additionally, these sins have brutal consequences that are averted by setting up safeguards or personal convictions.
This is where people often have a Franz Ferdinand response of, it's nothing. The reality is, it's not nothing. It may not be technically sin, but it most certainly is dangerous. And no matter how simple or small the provision may be, it's not nothing. And like Archduke Ferdinand, a person will arrogantly waltz from one assassination attempt to another. And when the assassination attempt finally succeeds, the world will errantly point an accusing finger at the Gavarillo Princip. It's all his fault. But that's not really the case. The choice to continue campaign activities was a provision of political ambition, a provision of pride, a provision of the flesh that set up the assassination. For years, we've been taught what Ephesians 6 tells us to do, to stand firm and to put on the armor, to prepare for a fight. Maybe you've heard people say something to the effect of the fact that the armor doesn't have coverings for your back because you're not supposed to turn your back in battle. You're supposed to, the implication being that you're supposed to go headlong into the battle. You're supposed to face your enemy. And I challenge that teaching, not as being wrong, just being incomplete. Because the Bible also teaches us to run away. While running away from battle or retreating is not traditionally esteemed as a good battle strategy, it's absolutely necessary. The same guy that says to stand firm is the same guy that says we should run from lust and idolatry. See 1 Corinthians 6 verse 8, 10 verse 14, and 2 Timothy 2.22. Pride will stand against these temptations and brag about how it can stand firm against such things. But sin, lust and idolatry in particular, is like an internal terrorist. It can fail a million times to land a punch, but it is successful in destroying its enemy when it finally lands just one. That's all it takes sometimes. To win the spiritual battles of life, you must know who you're fighting. Archduke Ferdinand did a poor job assessing and responding to the threat while completely ignoring his own proclivities, which played a more significant part in his demise. May it not be so for us. May we diligently stand firm against the devil and his schemes, and most certainly run when necessary. May we never make another provision for the flesh. May we come to experience what Jesus intended when he said, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you might have life, and life abundantly. It's in John 10.10. And that's God's promise to you. And I asked the question before, and I'll ask it again. What are you making provision for in your life? That's something... Everyone can gnaw. I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Gnaw. As always, if this has spurred you deeper in your relationship with God, please feel free to like and share. Let's get the word out. God bless. You.